Psalm 139, please, if you have a Bible. Psalm 139. I love the Psalms. I'm sure you love the Psalms. And this is one of my favourite Psalms. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in, behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say... Surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. We were down yesterday at the marina. Uh, we were coerced, invited, enticed to go down in the pouring rain to watch what was actually quite a wonderful event. The arrival of the baton, the Queen's baton relay. And there we were in the midst of the presence of this incredible baton. These uh, great scenes, these great crowds 
as we were thinking of sport, as we were thinking of people competing for gold, silver and bronze medals. And so all this is going on, but as we headed back in the car, the conversation among the children wasn't about the baton, it wasn't about the rain, it wasn't about the athletics. Do you know what was being discussed on the way back in the car from the Queen's Baton Relay event? The discussion was, who would be on television after six o'clock on Reporting Scotland? Because they had a video camera there, they had a reporter there, and all of the children were trying to get in the shot so that they would be on the six o'clock news. Well, they failed miserably. <laughs> but there is there's something in all of us, isn't there? There's a desire to be known. When you get a bit older, it becomes a desire to be famous. Why is it that people want to be on things like the X Factor? They want to be known. They want to be recognized. They want to be important and have a sense that their life is meaningful and significant. Well, I want to tell you, you don't need to go on the X Factor. You don't need to be on Reporting Scotland to be significant and important. Because this psalm tells us that there is one who knows us, who knows indeed everything about us. And because he knows us, we have significance, we have worth, and we have value. I simply want to work through this psalm. It's a a psalm which has a single theme. And the single theme of this psalm is that God knows you. Very simple. And yet there's so many intricate facets to this that God knows you and because he knows you he therefore cares about you and he will look after you from the very beginning to the end of your life so let's look through the through this psalm it's a song remember that these psalms are really Hebrew worship songs and this Hebrew song it had four verses to it four what they called stanzas and each of these Verses to this hymn has a, has a theme to it. So let's just work through it. The first verse corresponds to verses 1 to 6. And the theme of the, this opening verse of the hymn is very simply that God knows me. That's where David begins with the fact that God knows me. Now what does God know about David? David begins, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. Okay, David, what does God know about you then? And there's two basic things that David says. He says, number one, God knows the outside of my life. And number two, God knows the inside. So first of all, the outside. Look at verse two. He says, you know when I sit and when I rise. Verse three, you discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. So what David really is describing here is his daily routine. He's describing here the moments of the day when he's in his bed. He's describing those moments when he's sitting down in his living room. He's describing those moments when he gets up and heads out of the door and goes on an errand. He's describing here every aspect of his daily routine and he's saying God knows that routine. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? They say that the the American president has his schedule worked out before each day. He has an exact itinerary. 
And then at the end of the day, they record what actually happened on his day. Because the American president is so important that they keep a record of what he does in his daily routine. And yet God knows what time you got out of bed this morning. God knows what you had for breakfast. God knows what time you left the house. God knows every conversation you will have today. God knows the exact moment that you will fall over to sleep this evening. Isn't it remarkable to think that God bothers to know the details of your life and mine? So he knows the outside of my life. But even more than that, he knows the inside. And I think this is more remarkable, isn't it? Look at the second part of verse 2. You perceive my thoughts from afar. This God who seems far off. He's above the heavens. And yet, David says, from that far off place, God perceives every thought that is passing through my brain. Look at verse 4. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. Some of us don't know what we're going to say before we say it. And yet God knows what we're going to say before we say it. It's amazing, isn't it, to think that God knows us from the inside out. And and he loves us despite what he knows about us. So the God who knows me, that's verses 1 to 6. Then on to the, the second verse of the hymn. David then develops it a little bit further. He says, this God who knows me is the God who is with me. God knows me. And then secondly, God with me. Now, we're dealing here with with great attributes of God. The first verse of the hymn deals with what we call God's omniscience, that God knows everything. And then this second verse deals with what we call God's omnipresence, that God is Everywhere at all times. And David links these two things together. He says, the reason that God knows everything about me is because God is everywhere. Okay, so wherever I go, God is there. That's why he knows my daily routine. Because he is omnipresent. And there's this wonderful little game of hide and seek that David plays in these verses. I'm sure we all love the game of hide and seek. It's a wonderful game. Even as an adult now, I get to play it with my children, uh, which is almost as fun as when I was a child. Um, But David, in in these verses, he just imagines, he imagines playing hide and seek with God. Now I wonder, would it be possible to hide from God? You need to find a pretty good hiding place, wouldn't you? I don't think behind the curtains would do it with your legs sticking out under the bottom. And so David here, he imagines the most remote places that he could possibly hide in. So first of all, he goes up to the heavens. And he says, look, if I, if I go up to the heavens, verse 8, you are there. If I were to, to travel up through the stratosphere, through the, the furthest reaches of outer space, you would be there. Even the, the, the places where spaceships and satellites haven't reached yet, God is already there. So going up isn't going to work. Well, let's try going down then. If we can't hide in the heights, let's hide in the depths. David says, if I go down into the depths, you are there. 
If I were to, to dig down into the ground and, uh, and drill down to the very core of the earth, David says, even there, you would be present. But where are we going to hide? If we can't go up and we can't go down, what's left? Well, let's go around. Let's go around the globe. And that's what David imagines next. He says in verse 9, if I rise in the wings of the dawn. He imagines us following the, the route of the sun around the globe. And if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. You remember the story of Jonah? Remember this is what Jonah tried to do? Hopped onto a boat, followed the route of the sun from east to west. And on route to Spain, God caught up with him. He discovered this principle. You can't hide in the far side of the sea from God. So he's tried up, he's tried down, he's tried around. Where's left to hide from God? David comes up with a fourth hiding place. David says, well, I'll tell you what. Rather than running anywhere, I'll just stay where I am. And I'll wait till the darkness falls. I'll wait till the night time. And maybe in the darkness, God won't see where I am. Do you think that'll work? Verse 11. If I say surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The soldiers, they have those night vision goggles. I think everything turns green. But basically they can see in the dark as well as in the day. David says the night is like the day to God. Now, what's David's point with all this? He can't hide from God in the heights, the depths, traveling around the world in the darkness. Here's David's point. I think David is really comforted by this fact. I think David is reassured by this. And I'll tell you why I think that. Look at verse 10. He says, he's imagining he's hiding on the far side of the sea. And he says this, even there... Your hand will guide me. Do you see that? Your right hand will hold me fast. Do you see what David's saying here? David's saying, even if I'm in the most remote, distant, difficult place, God, his hand is there to guide me and his hand is there to hold me. So when David speaks here of of this imaginary game of hide and seek, he's not saying he wants to get away from God. He's saying... Whatever situation I'm in, however however deep the depths, however dark the place, God is there with me in it. His hand is there to guide me, and his hand is there to hold me. We see at the end of the psalm, David speaks of enemies. So David wasn't writing this psalm in an easy situation. He was surrounded by enemies, he was surrounded by difficulties, and he says, even in this remote place... God is with me, his hand is guiding me, his hand is holding me. And I think that's a very important pastoral principle. Because there are times in life when you find yourself in a very unfamiliar situation. You find yourself, as it were, far from home. You find yourself, as it were, in the depths or in the darkness or on the far side of the sea and you're facing difficult situations, uncharted waters and we need to understand in those moments that God is there as well. He's with us. There's no place where he is not. 
And so he's with you in the doctor's ward when you're getting the, the difficult diagnosis. He's with you by the graveside. He's with you when you get that difficult piece of news from one of your children that just breaks your heart. God is with you in those places. <coughs> Incidentally, what is true for us was not always true for the Lord Jesus. You think, of, you think of this psalm, that wherever we go, God is always with us. If we're in the depths, if we're in the darkness, God is there. That wasn't always true for our Lord Jesus. Because in that moment on the cross, the darkness fell, and the Father abandoned the Son. And so Jesus never knew this wonderful assurance that we always have, that God is always with me. He's always for me. The father abandoned Jesus. The father turned against Jesus. And we've, we've heard already why that is the case. Because in that moment, God treated Jesus as if he were sin itself. And he punished Jesus in your place and in mine. So that we might go free. So that we might be forgiven. So wonderful as, as we sing of God's presence with us to think of this thought. That we know that blessing because Jesus was denied that blessing. So the third thing is this, third, third verse of the hymn, David moves on to a third theme. He, he speaks of the God who made me. God knows me. God's with me. Thirdly, God made me. And this is just an absolutely amazing paragraph. Verses 13 to 18. You know, you know how sometimes you, you look at the label on a t-shirt or a... Or, or maybe an ornament, and on the bottom it has the words made in, where is it usually? China. Uh, made in Taiwan. Something like that. Now, the human body doesn't have that kind of label, but just imagine that every human being had a label imprinted, maybe on the sole of your right foot or something, okay? What would it say? Made in heaven? Maybe? Made by God? See, that's what David is saying in these verses. He's saying, I have been, look at the sole of my right foot here, I have been made by God. Look at how he, how he describes it. Verse 13, you created my inmost being. He's speaking there of his internal organs, which is the most wonderful part of us, the inside. I know we all look wonderful on the outside, don't we? But on the, the inside is even more amazing. My inmost being was created by God. You knit me together in my mother's womb. David uses the, the picture here of, of embroidery, of, of knitting. He says, God tailored me in the womb of my mother. He goes on in verse 14, he says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Um, there was a, a pastor many years ago called Augustine. Who, who once made a very perceptive comment. He said, people travel all over the world on holiday to see mountains and rivers and canyons. And yet, he said, they pass by the most amazing creation, their own body. You know, we just, you just don't give it a moment's thought, do you? The, the most amazing thing in all creation is the human body. And yet we don't even really think about it. 
David here says, as he thinks of his own physiology, he says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, the human body is absolutely amazing, isn't it? Um, You have, here's a few facts, okay? You have 200 bones in your body. You have about 600 muscles. The bones give you the strength and the muscles give you the flexibility so that you're not uh, a robot and you're not just a piece of jelly. You, you have uh, also a heart that pumps over 100,000 times a day. You don't have to think about any of those heartbeats, do you? And yet your heart does that involuntarily. Your blood is pumped around your body six litres per minute. So as you're just sitting there, just listening to me, six litres of blood is being pumped around your body every 60 seconds. Your body regulates its own temperature at 37 degrees. And if your temperature adjusts at all, let's say you start to get too hot, you have your own cooling system called sweat glands that cools you back down again. You have lungs that is able to process the the atmosphere around you. Again, you do it thoughtlessly, without any intent. And you're able to use the resources of the oxygen in the atmosphere. My favourite one is the stomach. Uh, God has given you a stomach that has, it produces gastric acid, very, very strong stuff. The gastric acid is obviously there to help you dissolve the food that you eat and then to process it into something that gives you energy. The gastric acid is so strong that it can actually burn through steel. And therefore, your stomach reproduces its stomach lining every three days. Because if your stomach didn't reproduce its own stomach lining, your stomach itself would be digested. Isn't the human body an amazing thing? That's before we even get to the upper part of your body. Of course, your your eyes, which can see over 10 million shades of colour. Your nose, which can detect over 10,000 different kinds of smells. And your brain, which is more complex than the best and most advanced computer in the world. And as David thinks about all of this, he says, Lord, you have made something that truly is wonderful and incredible. Now, I simply want to point out at at this point that these verses have enormous implications for the ethical issues the social issues of our day. The stuff that's on the news, even this week, this passage is the answer, the Christian answer to all of that. And there's two big issues on the horizon for us, isn't there? Uh, One is the beginning of life, the issue of abortion. And the other is the end of life uh, and voluntary suicide, assisted suicide. It's interesting this week, I don't know if you read this story, some of you who are interested in football might have noticed this. Cristiano Ronaldo, you know who he is, right? Uh, his mother came out this week and said she, she thought about having him aborted. She admitted this week that she thought of aborting him when he was in the womb. This passage clearly teaches, doesn't it, that within the womb there is not just a fetus 
There's not just an embryo and all these impersonal words that people use to to dehumanize what's in the womb. But what is in the womb, every womb, is a person. Is a human being that God himself is knitting together. And therefore, when we mess with that, we're actually messing with God's own handiwork. The baby is not the property of the mother. Um, It is the property of God himself. So this passage speaks to that. But also, as I was thinking about it this morning again, it actually speaks to the end of life as well. Because one of the big issues has been, hasn't it? You know, do we have the right to take our own lives? And that's been discussed this week. And it's interesting for me, look at verse 16. That God has mapped out our lives from the beginning to the very end. Look at verse 16. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now, this is not literal. You know, God doesn't literally have a, a, a library or a book. He doesn't need such a thing. But David just sort of imagines it in this way. It's as if God has a book and the, the book is the book of your life. Do some of you remember this is your life? Many of you will. Uh, they would turn up with a big red book and they would start off, you know, you were born and such and such a day and such and such a year and then they they just take them through the whole of their lives God has a book and it's about your life and what David is saying is something remarkable he's saying that actually even when we are being formed in the womb of our mothers God has already finished the book he knows every day of our lives to the last day from the beginning before we've even been born God knows every day of your life and every event that will happen to you until the day that you take your final breath. And what that that tells us is that God is sovereign over our lives. That he has the, the authority, he has the right to decide the day that he calls us home to be with himself. So friends, this is the the wonder that God made me. And friends, if God made me, here's the pastoral implication. If he made me, then that means he has a care for me. Because if you create something, if you fashion it, then it, it matters to you. And every mother here knows something of that. You can't just switch off your care for that child you've made. And I speak to grandparents now. And uh, some of them in their 60s and 70s, and they say, you know, the children are out of the house, but we still are as anxious about the kids as we ever were. Well, if that's true of, of a human parent, surely that's true of God. He made you. And because he made you, he cared for you. And that's the point that David's bringing out. That God has this, of course God has this interest in him. He formed him, and now he's going to keep him. The fourth and final part of the the psalm then is is this. God knows me. God is with me. We've seen that God made me. And the final thing is this, that God searches me. God searches me. Now this kind of draws together the psalm. And it it gives us a a really challenging application at, at the end. Because if we've been thinking this through... As we've been going through the psalm and through the study, it will have dawned on us, you know, if God knows everything about me, then that's bad news in in one way. 
It's bad news in the fact that God therefore must know all about my sins. If God knows everything, if he knows my routine, if he knows every day of my life and everything I ever do, then that has a downside. Because it means that God knows all the dark spots in my heart. And David finishes with that then, doesn't he? Look at verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way, any sinful way, is the the idea there, in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Now, what, what I want you to notice here is just something very simple. David invites the Lord to search his heart and to expose his sin. Now, there's a sense in which, of course, God already knows David's sin. I mean, look again at verse 1. David began with it, didn't he? Oh, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. God already knows about all of David's sins. But at the end of the psalm, David invites God to search him. He invites God to know him. He says, God, I want you to to search my heart And to expose any sin that is within my heart. And why does does David do that? Well, I want to suggest two reasons as we finish. As we finish. Number one, because David doesn't know how sinful he is. (coughs) Have have you ever had that experience of, this always happens to me with tomato ketchup. Um, You know, you're eating something with tomato ketchup and you always seem to get a little bit on your... You know, on your on your lips somewhere, and the thing about that is, it must you just you can never feel that it's there. So somebody has to point it out to you, and you know, usually it's my wife, and she's sort of politely not saying anything, but she's going get rid of that. Sin is like that. Sin is like that. The, the, one of the problems with sin is when I look at other people, I can see their sin really easily. I can see the tomato ketchup on their face, right? What we don't see so easily is sin sin on our our own face. That's what sin's like. It's deceptive. And so it seems to me one of the reasons why David says, Lord, search me, know me, expose my sin, is because he understands he's more sinful than even he knows. And so this is a prayer that we need to pray regularly to God. As we come to confess our sin, we need to say, Lord, would you show me more of my sin? Would you show me more of the depths of my own depravity? But why would you pray that? You know, because you're just going to feel guilty, aren't you? You're going to realize you're even more of a sinner. So why would you pray that? Lord, show me more of my sin. I think the second reason is this. That David has the confidence that if he confesses his sin, his God will forgive him his sin. That he's not going to be left in the place of condemnation. You see, see, David comes to God on the same basis that you and I come to him. On the basis of the fact that yes, he is holy, but he's also forgiven. You know, David lived in the days of the temple, of the days of sacrifice. David knew all about the lambs that were slain for the sins of the world. And 
you and I know that as well. You, you and I know that when we pray that prayer and we say, Lord, expose my sin, we know that we can then make a beeline for the cross of Calvary. And we can know yet more of God's grace and more of God's mercy. And so maybe you're here this morning and maybe, maybe you have some comprehension of, of sins in your life. Or maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, well, you know, I'm doing pretty all right. I'm doing okay. Whatever situation you find yourself in, whether you think you're doing well or whether you think you're doing really rubbish at the moment, I invite you to pray this prayer. To pray at the end of this service, Lord, expose my sin. Show me more of my sinful heart. Not so that you'll be left feeling condemned, but so that you can then bring those sins to the cross and know the forgiveness and the cleansed conscience that God wants to give to you. It's a great psalm, isn't it? I invite you to take it away this week. I invite you to read it, think about it, apply it. There's so much more that I've not touched on this morning. But I pray that this will just whet your appetite as we think of this God that knows us so well and yet loves us so much. Amen.